0: some of the uh, fallout from that as the persecutor himself becomes persecuted. Um, So I invite you to go ahead, uh, open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to get started in verse 23, but let me uh, begin us with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, we give you thanks for the witness of your servant Saul, later Paul, and the way that through him you brought the gospel and spread your good news to many more. Dear Lord, we pray that as we continue the study of the book of Acts this morning, that you would be with us and give us boldness so that, like Saul, Paul, we might fearlessly bear witness to the good news of our risen Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. All righty. Let's open up then to Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, that is, to kill Saul. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. All right. So here we have Saul right off off the bat. (laughs) No sooner does he um, become a believer and the persecutor becomes persecuted. Um, And so number two on your handout there. Saul, like the Israelite spies of old, chooses flight over fight. And he recounts this story again himself in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just a little added detail. He says, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. And uh, perhaps for some of you, this uh, brings to mind that Old Testament story of the spies um, going into uh, into Jericho. You remember this, yeah. uh, with Rahab, right? And so from Joshua two, uh, then Rahab let them down, and was it Joshua and Caleb? Um, I'm not mistaken. I, I'm not recalling off the top of my head, but um, they let th- she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. So I'm not sure exactly if there are any intended allusions there um, as Luke tells the story. But I think it's an interesting um, uh, comparison to draw with that Old Testament story. And just one other detail to point out. Um, the, the kind of basket that was used for Paul as he's being lowered down out the window. Uh it's the same basket that's described when Jesus feeds the five thousand. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets. The Greek word is spirados, just like what, what Saul had, full of the broken pieces left over. So yeah, it's a bread basket that they're letting Saul out the window down in there. But uh, one of the things I find interesting, and I'm, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on this, is how Saul, um, so right off the bat, Saul, uh, the persecutor, is being persecuted. And in the sermon today, if you already had a chance to, to watch the service, I talk about how Christians go through persecution and suffering, and, and that's part of our identity. Um, but Saul chooses to flee, or perhaps other people made that decision for him, rather than to stand and you know, kind of endure the consequences, much less to, to fight. But um, do you find any tension there? And just asking more broadly, how do Christians know, when is it time to to flee? And when is it time to fight? Or if not to fight, you know, to kind of stand your ground and say, this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to be versus, you know, saying, you know what, we're just, we're going to, we're going to flee. We're going to get out of this situation. We're not going to, uh, to try and engage here um and maybe we'll live to fight another day but anyway that's kind of just an open-ended thought that kind of struck me reading that story do any of you have any um thoughts or reactions to that and just a reminder you've got the chat bar um down at the bottom or feel free to uh, just unmute and speak up i
1: think by prayer only
0: what do you mean by that say more
1: Um, when you're in a situation, I feel like I have to pray about what God wants me to do. Yeah. And sometimes
0: I don't know. So, but other times I feel like God shows me
1: this is where you should be or, you know, that he gives you an answer. Right. Um, And obviously, no matter which way we choose
0: to go, because we do have the freedom to do it or not, um, God can use it. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. No matter which way we go, God can God can still use it. Um so we go through, you know, in prayerful discernment and seek to do what's best by our lights um and and in faith, but ultimately handing it over to handing it over to the Lord and saying, God, I you know, I don't know exactly what to do in this situation, but you're able to to work it out. So yeah, that's a very important point. Thank you, Connie.
1: I think uh, you know, Luther's was willing to face the consequences, but his friends took him under their wings. Yeah, and in this case, it was Saul's friends that. So I think you got to listen to the other Christians around you too.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, Tom. That there's um, the counsel of of others and and wise friends and and elders and so forth. And uh, that's a neat analogy with Luther. You're right. He was he was ready to go. And there's that great story. It's depicted in the movies where. You know, after the, the Diet of Worms, when he made his famous Here I Stand profession, and he was being led away. But then he gets captured. He gets kidnapped. His friends, you know, brought him to the Wartburg Castle. They weren't ready for him to go yet, even if he was ready to go. And uh, I think that's a, a really interesting story, too. Good. Any other thoughts or reflections on that? yeah you know, I think again, it's it's prayerful discernment to um, seek out what's best in any particular situation and uh, and and trust the Lord on it to go forward um, boldly under his blessing. All right, let's continue then. Uh, verse twenty six in acts nine. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. You can just imagine the scene, right? Like, wait a second. Who invited this guy? How did did he get past the guards here? Um, So I, I very much sympathize with their reaction there. They were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him off to Tarsus. Okay, so there's a lot going on here in these few verses. I want to lift up a couple of points in particular. Um, so first of all, it's interesting how Saul. Number three on your handout here, Saul's personal conversion needed corporate validation. He had had this. Um, remarkable, miraculous revelation of the Lord. Other people were even there and and heard it, were able to testify to it. For him personally, it set him irrevocably on the path toward being a, a follower of Christ to his death. But still, the other disciples, still the church at large, needed to have some uh, role in validating that inward subjective experience. There needed to be both an objective confirmation of Saul's uh, subjective conversion and change. And the, to me, this made me uh, think of the call process in our church body, in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, where a person will feel a subjective sense of calling to the ministry, right? I felt this, and just about anybody who goes to the seminary has that subjective sense I feel called to the ministry. And maybe others have encouraged them along the way. I mean, in fact, that's almost always the case. And yet, that's not sufficient to say, I'm going to serve as a pastor in the church. There has to be not only that subjective sense of, yes, I have that that sensation, I want to be a a minister, but also then the church as a whole comes alongside, and this is the purpose of not only the um, seminary formation, but then the, the call itself and the ordination saying, okay, now our, our um, assessment as the church lines up with your subjective sensation, and now it's one. And in fact, for pastors, um, speaking personally, it's an extremely gratifying and, and satisfying moment to have those kind of line up. We don't always get that in life, right? That subjective sense with objective verification. But that's the purpose of the, of the call, recognizing both sides of that. And one other thing along those lines, um, this is one of the, uh, the birthplaces, the idea of a sponsor, of a baptismal sponsor. Now, of course, there isn't a, a baptism here, but the idea of a sponsor in the early church had two principal reasons. The one that we're most familiar with and which really still holds over till to today is with the baptism of an infant, right? So there's um, uh, infants being baptized are not yet able to profess that faith for themselves. And so in addition to on the parents. You also have a godparent or a sponsor who's going to speak on their behalf and also commit to their ongoing spiritual formation, to raising them up in the faith. Um, but initially, the role of the sponsor in the first couple of centuries of the church, and you get it with the trepidation that the disciples are feeling, uh, you needed to have some proof that you are a legitimate convert and not Somebody who was sneaking in in order to spy on the believers to see, okay, you know, to to find out, okay, what's going on with the church? You you needed uh, a sponsor to uh, verify, yes, this guy is legit. He actually is a, a real convert, and he's not a spy, someone who's trying to come in and to undo the church from inside. This is essentially the role that Barnabas plays in the story. Barnabas is the sponsor for Saul. He says, look, I can testify. His conversion is real. His faith is legitimate. We should receive him. And you see here how um, the the testimony of Barnabas, who, as we had heard about him earlier in Acts chapter 4, he was the one who had sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas clearly had some real um, credibility among the disciples because he says, you know what, guys, you can trust him, and they do. And uh, it's it's just a fascinating story on, on so many levels there. Um, so I've got a, a couple of, of chats here. Um, uh, Pete points out that in administrative parlance, you're trained to ask if this particular hill is the one you're willing to die on. Oh, going back to the, the previous story. That's right. Yeah. Um, Anne asks, or she says, those babies getting baptized can be pretty suspicious sometimes that's right <laughs> we need we need the sponsor to make sure i don't know can i trust this baby or not um yes thank you man. but uh it's a, it's an interesting fact but i you know you can see especially in those early days of the church they really needed they needed to be careful in a sense to make sure especially with somebody like Saul who was a notorious persecutor like is this guy for real and so they have that that verification But any other um, thoughts or reflections on that or questions about that? Yeah, Hans. Go ahead and uh, Uh, unmute
1: yourself. uh, Paul Paul is a hothead. He is just got all his zeal and whatever. And sometimes the Lord says, you need to calm down so
0: people will accept you more and here he's being put up
1: back at the tarsus for a cooling down period Uh, he's he's not there just fighting
0: yeah there's there's some real wisdom in this um and i love how you you point out his personality was he was he was zealous he he says as much in philippians 3 he was a he was a, a zealot um and and points out this is um Uh, I don't know where I first heard this phrase, phrase, but the idea of cage stage. Uh, Any of you heard this phrase before? So cage stage is when somebody first becomes a new convert, and it could be a religious convert, or it could be in other circumstances too, where somebody first has discovered something. You see this a lot with diets, okay, where somebody hops on to say the paleo diet, and suddenly they can't stop talking. Every person they talk to Every conversation is, I, I got to tell you about the paleo diet and how you need to stop eating carbs, right? Like every conversation, people are like, okay, again with the paleo. Yes, we've heard it before. It's, a, it's when you're at cage stage. In other words, you need to be caged. Otherwise, you're just going to attack everybody with this. And uh, certainly this happens with, with faith. And I think the Lord uses it in many cases, right? It's new converts are some of the greatest evangelists because they are so eager to get out and to share. But the downside to that is it can also scare people away sometimes. And especially if you have a temperament like the Apostle Paul seemed to have. And maybe he just need—he was in cage stage for a little while. He needed that cooling off period. So thank you, Hans, for pointing that out. That, I, think, I think that's right. So good. Well, the other thing I wanted to, to lift up about this passage, the latter half of that paragraph, so Paul goes out and he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He's speaking and disputing against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. Why are they seeking to kill him? It's because Saul is a dangerous anti-authority. I came across this phrase in some reading a few years ago, uh, the, the idea of an anti-authority. Usually we think of authorities as being the ones who have, um, you know, the, the best um, credibility and experience and personality and character, and in many cases they are good authorities. But anti-authorities are those who, through a negative um, experience, are even are able to give an even more compelling testimony. For example. Um, Many times with PSAs, with commercials against smoking, like anti-smoking campaigns, they'll have somebody who, you know, has had cancer or maybe, you know, they have to, they use a tracheotomy or something like that. And basically the message is, don't be like me. That's an anti-authority. This is not the kind of people, you know, that's not like Brad Pitt or, you know, some celebrity saying, hey, you shouldn't do it. Instead, it's an anti-authority. Well, Saul is the most dangerous anti-authority for those who are continuing to persecute and to oppose the church. Because here is someone who has just taken this incredible about-face and uh, is not only not persecuting Christians anymore, but now he's advocating for them. And it's interesting when you have an eye for these anti-authorities, how, what a role they play in the spread of the gospel in the early days. You think of uh, one of the demon-possessed men, where everybody had seen him. They knew that this guy was going around, he was a raving lunatic. Um, But then Jesus heals him. And then in Luke 8, it says, then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. And in a, a story that has a lot of analogies to Saul, um, with Lazarus. So in John 12, it says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So just like with Saul, they're looking to kill him, to quiet him, because his voice is so powerful and compelling. And the same thing was happening with Lazarus. I don't believe that they ever prevailed and were successful in that with Lazarus, although I, uh, I guess I don't know for certain. But um, it's interesting that the powerful message of the anti-authority. But any thoughts or, or comments on that and how uh, an anti-authority, are there other anti-authorities that you can think of that uh, really give a, a powerful testimony to the gospel? You, you think of other um, examples. Yeah, Ann. There you go. Um, C.S. Lewis is one. Yes. Yep, C.S. Lewis, where um, maybe he wasn't quite a, a persecutor of the church, but he, wa- he was an outspoken critic. And next thing you know, he's now uh, this great apologist and, and uh, evangelist. Another one who's not as well known, um, but a guy by the name of Anthony Flew, and he was a uh, an outspoken atheist, um, and later became a believer and became an outspoken uh, advocate for the faith. Um, Chip, you and I were talking about this uh, uh, novelist. is a little bit of a more complicated past, but Anne Rice, um, who had also been uh, um, an outspoken critic of Christianity, and became a Christian and went through the cage stage for a while. And now I'm not quite sure where she's at, but um, yeah, and um, the
1: Megadeth guy who went to seminary.
0: Yes. Our Megadeth LCMS pastor, one of the guys from the band Megadeth uh, became uh, a Christian, a Lutheran and uh, was going through one of our distance education programs through the LCMS. And of course had started a praise band entitled, mega life i mean that was the easiest <laughs> one of all time that, that, that's a true story though um okay. but yeah uh mom yeah
1: yeah francis collins um the head of the nih was yeah. in his undergraduate and as he went on through his career now he's a, a an evangelical christian yeah and, you know melds science and religion together
0: yeah Yeah, Francis Collins, if you guys have never read or heard about Francis Collins, what a fascinating guy. He just won the Templeton Prize um, Mm -hmm. for, um, just like uh, Patrice said, um, for uh, faith and religion, you know, bringing those together or faith and science. I'm sorry. Um, So it's a great example. Um, (laughs) Pete found out Nikki Cruz, a former gang member of the 60s. I'm not familiar with Nikki Cruz, but that sounds like a somebody who could potentially be a gang member and then to come over to faith. Very cool. So there's a lot of these anti-authorities through the ages of, you know, people who had been, you know, pushing against the gospel and then coming over um, to the Lord's side and the way he uses them is, uh, is really remarkable. So, okay. Verse 31 then it's just, it's one of these verses, this, um, Luke punctuates his narrative with these throughout um, the book of Acts. And verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And to me, especially as a a pastor, as leader of the church, I just find this so encouraging and affirming and a, a great reminder for all of us that God is the one who does the work, right? That he is the one who gives growth to his church. So number five on your handout, God gives the growth to his church. Notice the, the, pa- the passive voice there. The church had peace and was being built up. It was not building itself up. It was being built up. And um, the, implied, the implied subject there is God, the Holy Spirit at work. It comes out more clearly through the second half of that verse. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What was the church doing? It was just being the church. It was doing the things we saw in Acts chapter two. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were praying. They were giving alms. Just basic, fundamental Christian things. And through that, as the word was sown, God gave the growth. Uh, you know, you've got First Corinthians three when Paul um, put this so beautifully. He said, "What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants." through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God, through his word, grows his church. Or again in Colossians 1, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints Uh, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Okay, it is the gospel, it's the word of God that gives the growth. It was true in Acts, it's still true for us. Um, Yeah, I mean countless um and reminds me with um augustine uh, as well as in terms of an anti-authority was somebody else who had been contra christianity came to faith but also a great example of how god gives the growth as his mom monica continued to sow the seed of the word in his heart and the lord is the one who ultimately brought him to brought him to faith but I just, I so appreciate those statements in the book of Acts. And I don't know, do you guys have any reflections on that? Or um, is that something that you've thought about before, been encouraged by um, just personally, as well as a Christian, that it's the word that does the work. God, God gives the growth. Very well. Let's go on. And uh, just quick question: Having heard the church bells in the background here, so did any of you guys notice if you watched the service already this morning that the church bells going off in the middle of the sermon? <laughs> I, was, I was recording on Thursday, I guess, at noon. Uh, it came to noon. I was like, "Oh my goodness!" But uh, you know, that's okay. <laughs> Incidentally, kids pointed out it was it started going off right at at ten o'clock here. Uh, uh, the timed up, lined up kind of nicely, but anyway. Okay, Um, let's go on to, uh, so now we leave Saul, and we won't come back to Saul for a couple of chapters. So now we're going to go pivot back to Peter, and we're going to hear about the ministry of Peter and the way God was continuing to grow the church through, through Peter's ministry. So we're up to verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he's kind of an itinerant evangelist at this point, He came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And uh, it's pointed out there may be some wordplay here. The Greek word for heal is iaamai, and Jesus in Greek is Iesus. And so to the Greek ear, it might have sounded related, you know, um, Iesus iaamai. So Jesus Christ heals you rise and make your bed. It's a great verse for parents to use with their kids, actually. Rise and make your bed. Um, And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they returned to the Lord. Okay. So, but it is interesting. I joke about the, the making the bed um, how this changed life starts with making the bed. And this is not the first time that we hear this, this kind of uh, counsel. Jesus, of course, would say to the, the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and, and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who'd given such authority to men. Um, it's a, in, a, in a sense, it's kind of a strange thing for Peter to say here, get up and make your bed. Why does he do that? Can't say for certain, but I think part of it is this man has been paralyzed, unable to do anything for himself, for eight years. And on top of all of the other difficulties and frustrations, suffering that comes along with that, it's just that sense of I wish that I could do things for myself. And some of you can can testify to this when you go through these seasons of life, or maybe it's more than a season. You wish that you could do more. And that's really frustrating. And that sense of that, that there's a a kind of a lost um, dignity that can come with not being able to do these things or a perceived loss of dignity, right? Still, we are able to um, do things in different ways and God uses us. But I think that that's, it's a really poignant moment when Peter says, get up and make your bed, because that's a little thing that now you are able to do where before you were not able to do anything. When I think about little things, um, the Lord spoke of little things often. In Matthew 25, the parable of the, of the talents, the, uh, Jesus has the master saying to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The Lord asks of us to do the little things. Maybe big things will come, but simply to take those baby steps, to do those little things. Again, in Luke 16. One who is faithful in a very little, he says there, is also faithful in much. But conversely, one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. We're not called to do great things. We are called to do the little thing that's in front of us. Perhaps God makes of that great things. But J.S. Bach, for example, did not set out to change the world with his music. He wrote cantatas for his parish church, right? He was an organist. At, he was just an organist at his, in his parish, serving God's people. And what do you know? The Lord made great things of that. We are called to do our little things well. You think of Mother Teresa, and uh, we used to have a, a crocheted thing. Yeah, and I don't know where that is. We need to uncover that. But uh, where Mother Teresa would say, we can do no great things, but only small things with great love. And uh, along these lines, you get, many of you guys probably saw this already. I want to share a video here that went viral a few years ago. It was um, the—it's this time of year, right—the commencement speech at I think it was at the University of Texas, and maybe some of you saw this. I'm just going to share about a minute clip of this admiral um, encouraging uh, the the graduates. So let's see. If I'm going to stop the share and see if I can find it here. Yes, there we go. If you want to
1: change the world.
0: Wait, can you hear that? Yeah. Okay, good.
1: Start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that but the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. Oh, that's nice.
0: Yeah, maybe some of you have seen that before. I, I just, I love that. And uh, we try to make the bed. <laughs> And, yeah it's, it's those it's those little things I have found that this is something that divides people though you know in addition to politics and religion it's whether or not you make the bet there's some mm-hmm. folks who just say why why would you do it but anyway um, it's it's those little things and I think it's just a, a great uh, beautiful ad- advice that he gives there so okay let's uh, continue on to uh, verse 30 36 as so we turn from the story of Aeneas to our friend. Dorcas now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, the gazelle, which she was full of good works and acts of charity. in those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Again, there aren't funeral homes at this point. the Christians would take on themselves the preparation for, for burial um, that, that was part of the ministry of the church. Um, was Since Lido was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And the Greek uh, gives the impression that they weren't just showing it off, but they were wearing it, right? They were doing a kind of fashion show, wearing these garments that Dorcas had had, uh, made for them. Okay, so here, once again, we see how uh, the ministry of the apostles in many ways mirrors the ministry of the Lord. And as I say, number seven on your handout, the Lord remembers the little ones. You see this throughout the scriptures going back to, I I think of in the book of Exodus, how you have the midwives who refused uh, Pharaoh's decree to throw the babies into the water and I don't remember off the top of my head, but it says in Exodus chapter one, it gives their names, right? And how God prospered them. He remembers the little ones. He looks out for those whom others might not care about. And here you have um, Dorcas, a a woman who we get the impression she's just, she's toiling away in good works, in those kind of unremarkable little ways to uh, minister to and to serve the widows of the community. Others whom, people might not care about or, or would forget about, especially in that culture. But that's one that God says, I'm going to give her life again because she matters. She has a vital ministry. I want to see it continue. And in terms of that echoing of the Lord's ministry and the way we see him caring for the little ones, you think of Mark 5, where it says, Jesus came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weep, weeping and wailing loudly and When he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Nice rhyming there. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now, one thing that's fascinating in terms of this story with this, the story in Acts is Peter's words exactly mirror Jesus' words, and they're different by just one letter. So Jesus says, Talitha kumi. Peter would have said in Aramaic, Tabitha kumi, uh, which is it's just fascinating. And again, another way we see that kind of uh, mirroring of the ministry. But here you have this little girl, where the Lord says, here, I'm going to give you life again. This is God's heart. And of course, in this life, not every little girl gets life restored to her. But this is ultimately God's purpose, that every single one um, that belong to him, they're going to be raised to life once, once again. And, uh, you know, Jesus expresses this so beautifully in his sermons, called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. Um, the Beatitudes there, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So they did to the their fathers did to the prophets. Again, heaven brought that up in, in the sermon today as well but here you see jesus um uh you see the um as jesus had said blessed are you when you weep for you shall laugh and later in that passage he says <laughs>
1: uh
0: you who laugh now you shall weep and we see that with him healing the um the little girl as well but um and you've got your hand up go ahead
1: um yeah i was wondering it's kind of a question about the story in mark about
0: um it's the the houses of the ruler of the synagogue and and people are weeping do you do you think the fact that jesus points out how she's sleeping does that have to do with the religious leaders beliefs about the resurrection in other words and because they're there at the this house of the ruler of the synagogue
1: and i mean it does he kind of like, is he sticking that in their eye? Right. Why um, especially,
0: is he, is he especially saying it here for a reason at the house of the, the ruler of the synagogue? Yeah, that's a good question. I think he very well may be and trying to remind them of their own faith, right? Of You are people who believe in the resurrection or say that you believe in the resurrection. That was not a, mm-hmm. uh, a, a belief that was unique to uh, Jesus and the early Christians, of course, is taken over from, from Judaism as well. So that's, yeah, that's very much a possibility. can't say for certain, but I think uh, that could be the case. Yeah, good question. Yes, uh, Carla.
1: I was just wondering, and I've often wondered about Lazarus and this one and the little girl and those right. who were raised at the time of the crucifixion. How do they feel about that? I mean, here they are all of a sudden alive and they have to start all over again.
0: Right, I know. It's a, it's a fascinating question. And kind of, um, well, I, you know, I told the story in the sermon today and uh, uh, about the woman who was saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to dying and being with Jesus. And uh, there was a, a song, like a contemporary Christian song from the 80s, um, kind of to this point about Lazarus and Lazarus's mixed emotions when he comes back to life. <laughs> like, well, wait a second. I'm back again, and I'm glad to be back. It's great for the family. But on the other hand, you know, uh, then I was in heaven. I was, I was with the Lord. Um, so, yeah, I think it must have been a complicated situation, probably less so for the little girl who, you know, she's, she's back. But uh, for, for Lazarus, um, for Dorcas slash Tabitha, It may well have been, but ultimately all of us are still looking forward to the resurrection. And so insofar as this was kind of a little foretaste of the resurrection, um, I think it is certainly still good news, but it must have been a little confusing. No question about that.
1: Yeah, Pete. Well, right. So Peter could, you know, so easily have said to everybody, leave her alone. She's in heaven. You know, I mean, does anybody here have any doubts about that? Why would we want to call her back? And the other thing that occurs to me is, okay, she's back wouldn't this be a great opportunity for her to tell everybody what heaven was like? Yeah. you know, oh, I mean, yeah, you know right. There's an evangelism tool, right? <laughs> right. And yet there, there's an absolute silence over that from all three of the individuals that, uh, uh I'm sorry. Um, the yeah. gal that just spoke a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, on. Just absolute silence and and silence really from the prophets when they get into the throne room of heaven. What do they see? You know, the train of his robe. Right. Uh, John looks into heaven. What does he see? Uh, Streets that are are so pure, they're clear. You know, they're gold, but they're clear. We don't get that picture of the glory of God in heaven. Why is that?
0: Yeah. No, I mean... You wondered, like, did they have to sign up a binding non-disclosure agreement before that we can go back <laughs> to life? Go back. No sharing anything. <laughs> if you're not what, coming back
1: unless.
0: <laughs> right. But I think part of it might be what Jesus says in Luke 16 when he tells the parable of of Lazarus. Uh, I mean, it's he uses the name Lazarus. Like we don't. It's not necessarily supposed to be the same Lazarus and the rich man and they say, Oh, you know, the rich man says, Well, go and send him back to my brothers. Because if if uh you know if somebody rises from the dead, they'll believe. And Jesus right. says to him, If they've got Moses and the prophets, if they won't believe their words, neither will they believe if somebody rises from the dead. Right. And I think it, it goes along with the uh um the message recurring throughout the scriptures, um, and certainly in Jesus' ministry, that it's not about signs and wonders, it's believing, you know, Jesus says to Thomas not blessed are you are you believe because you've seen blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so um, while we, we really want that um, compelling testimony of one who's dying, come back to life. It's almost like um, the scriptures withhold it from us on purpose because that's not where our faith is founded in. Our faith is founded in that word and promise of God. And not necessarily in the testimony, but I'm with you. I mean, I, yeah, I'd love to have heard that. At least if there could have been a footnote or something, but uh, <laughs> uh, we'll get there though. In due time, we will be there as well. Good. Well, okay. Just one last thought then, a closing um, thought on this on this passage, and especially thinking back to Saul. Um, Your most, uh, oh, oh, the I, that was left over from last week, but number eight here. Your most Persuasive witness is often not sharing your feats, but your faults, and just an encouragement for all of us. We think about those anti-authorities, and as Christians, we think, okay, to give the best witness, I've got to share about how you know Jesus really, you know, just changed my life, and now um, I'm I'm well-to-do and things, are, you know, I'm healthy, wealthy, and wise, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, maybe in some situations that can be a compelling witness, and in some churches more so. But uh, I think for most of us, the, the most compelling witness is not how, oh, life got so smooth and easy, but it's simply sharing our, our faults and the fact that, um, like we said last week, as, as Paul would say later in First Timothy, chief of sinners though I be, right? But um, in spite of myself, not because of my great virtue or my great faithfulness, but indeed in spite of it, God has been faithful to me, forgives me as an imperfect person, and uh, their friends is the real potency of the message, the message, the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of them. Don't be um, afraid of sharing those ways that you've fallen short to recognize. Yeah. A testimony is not about us. It's about pointing to God and his grace. And uh, I, I think that's just a lesson that we, we can't learn enough when it comes to our Christian faith. Any last uh, thoughts or comments before we go? Um. Uh, Okay, so next week, as you've no doubt heard by now, we are going to be resuming public worship. Um, so we're going to have um, service on Saturday evening and also Sunday morning. But what that means is our Zoom Bible study, at this time at least, is, uh, is going to go away. I, I'd like to continue it perhaps at a different time. Um, and, but I'm, I'm curious, are you guys interested in that? Um, another thought is you know to resume having in person Bible studies again um, perhaps you know one thought it had you know do in the courtyard here at church of course that doesn't help you folks who might be in Colorado or lake Orion or, or wherever else um, but um, anyhow, do you have any input or feedback about that um, knowing you know next week as our Sunday morning service is going to be at 10 thirty we're not going to be able to do Bible study at this time but Would you be interested in a midweek Bible study or any other?
1: Hmm. Maybe Sunday evening. We're open for midweek during the day. Take one of your working days. Okay. That would work for us. What's that, Carla? Almost any time would work for us.
0: Okay. Hmm. Um, yeah, Connie, it's well, we've enjoyed having you guys join us. So I, I want, to, I'd like to be able to um, continue this somehow. Um, so, we'll I'll look at some some different times, or maybe uh, I don't want to overcommit myself. I was gonna say maybe on Sunday at another time or earlier or something, but um, that's just gonna. I'm going to need to, to sort it out, but we're continuing, I'm going to continue this study of Acts. You know, we're only nine chapters in. I'm, I want to do the whole book, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to figure this out one way or another. Um, but uh, suffice it to say, um, next week at ten thirty, if you uh, turn tune into Zoom, we won't, we won't be here. Instead, we'll be gathering for worship, which I'm very excited about, and uh, hope to see some of you guys out there. Of course, socially distanced and being safe and smart, but uh, um, we're looking forward to to being able to gather again. So thank you so much guys for tuning in and throughout the season as we've been doing this and uh, God bless you. See you soon. Take care.